Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the second half of the program today, we're going to talk with wildlife naturalist Casey Anderson. Together with his best friend, Grizzly Bear, uh, named Brutus, uh, Casey Anderson's worked on feature films, television shows, and commercials. When they're not on the set, they spend their days at Montana Grizzly Encounter, a bear rescue and education facility that Casey Anderson founded in 2004 in Bozeman, Montana. And we'll hear some excerpts from a television broadcast uh, from uh, 2010, which is when we uh, first broadcast uh, that conversation. We begin today with a conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Charles Duhigg. Uh, He is joining us in the first half of the program uh, to talk about the power of habit, which explores the science of habit formation in our lives, companies, and society, and his book, Smarter, Faster, Better, which explores the science of productivity. Charles Duhigg says that in today's world, it's more important to manage how you think rather than what you think. This broadcast uh, first made in 2011. I wonder if we could start back on the uh, the previous book, The Power of Habit. I just I just find so fascinating your introduction to the science of habit formation. Uh, you're you're out in in Iraq, right? To talk to an army major there. I wonder if you could tell us that story. That's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. So so I was a I, I had just graduated from business school and became a, a reporter. And one of my first um, assignments was to go to Iraq. And, and when I landed in Baghdad, I basically realized this was like the worst decision I'd ever made to get sent to Iraq. And, and so I was looking for stories I could do that would let me stay indoors for the most part. And, and I heard about this army major down in Kufa, which is a, a city about an hour south of Baghdad, that was doing this kind of interesting experiment. And this guy had been sent down to stop riots from happening. And, and so what he did is he sat down with the mayor of the city, and he said, you know, he had this laundry list of requests. And the last request was, can you take the food vendors out of the plazas? And the mayor said, sure, sure, I can get the food vendors out of the plazas. So a couple of, hour, a couple of days later, there's um, a group that starts gathering around the Grand Mosque of Kufa. And the thing they never tell you about riots in television news is that it starts, um, it takes hours and hours for a riot to develop, right? A, a small group of people will show up and then more spectators and spectators and spectators until the crowd is big enough that someone throws a rock and kind of all hell breaks loose. And so a couple of days later, this starts happening. Some, some troublemakers show up and some spectators and the crowd gets larger and larger and larger. It gets about to the size when a riot looks like it's going to break out. And that's about 5.30, 5.45 at night. And the people at the periphery of the crowd, they start looking around because it's dinner time, and they start looking for something to eat. But the mayor had res- removed all the food vendors from the plazas. <laughs> so, so the people at the periphery of the crowd, they kind of just wander home to go have dinner. And then there's another ring of people who are right inside that, that group of spectators, and they see these folks leaving, and they assumably think to themselves, oh, there must be a better riot going on someplace else. I'm going to follow all those people to wherever they're going. And over about 45 minutes, the entire plaza clears out, and the riot never happens. And it had been about nine months that, since the major had made this change, and there hadn't been a riot since then. And I asked him, how did you know that removing the food vendors would stop riots? And he said, well... I didn't really know, but, but when, I, when I enlisted in the military, I kind of learned that the, the, the entire military is designed as a habit change machine, right? Our instinct when we're getting shot at is to run the other direction, but, but the military teaches people to shoot back, or it teaches them good communication habits, so when they're on the battlefield, they know what to do. And he said, once you start seeing a group of cr- a crowd, a group of people as, as a collection of habits, 
starts changing how you think, and you recognize that if you can change the environment, you can change how people behave. And and this major, he says, uh, you, you quote him, my wife and I write out habit plans for our marriage. So I guess you want you to learn these yeah, principles. That's you right. Can... He does it for his kids. I mean, I think that's the thing, is that once you understand how habits function, it, it gives you a lot of power over the world. Now, now, what's interesting about that is that the, the book that, that just recently came out this week about the, the science of productivity, it kind of builds on that idea. Because if, if habits are something that happen almost unconsciously, things that happen without us really having any control over it, then, then productivity in some ways is actually the opposite, right? Productivity is about making more deliberate decisions, about, about understanding how your brain works, so that you can take more control of your days and do the things that are useful and productive rather than simply falling into a trap of doing whatever keeps you busy. You know, as I'm, uh, I've watched some, uh, you know, some videos of you talking about this back to the Army major in Iraq, uh, it's fascinating, but it, it can also, if you apply that to, you know, companies who are targeting our habits, it can be a little bit concerning. Um, you know, for you tell a story about uh, Target. Um, a, a, a father uh, gets this circular for you know pregnancy uh, products, and and his he says, "Well, my daughter is not; uh, she's not pregnant." But it turns out the story that Target knows more than the father. That's exactly right. So, so one of the things that we know, and, and this is kind of the age that we live in, is, is that companies collect data on us. And they can use this data for what's known as predictive analytics, for trying to predict how we'll behave and what we'll do. And this has become really, really useful for, for companies and for individuals, right? We're living during an age of big data. Well, one of the drawbacks of this, though, is that in this age of big data, is that we have to be careful about whether we're actually learning from data or not. In fact, one of the, the ideas um, that we explore in, in Smarter, Faster, Better is about this concept called disfluency, and it's about the Cincinnati public school system. The Cincinnati public school system, was much like Target, was collected a ton of data on, on each of its students, and it would make these really fancy graphs and memos, and they would send them to teachers to try and educate teachers about you know, what they should be doing to help their students learn. They did this for a couple of years, and what they found is that the teachers never looked at the memos. They never paid attention to any of the graphs. The, the school district had a bunch of data, but they weren't learning anything from it. So the school, the, the district decided to do something different. They said, from now on, instead of sending you guys a bunch of memos and graphs and things that are really easy to read, what we're going to ask is we're going to ask every teacher to go into what's known as a data room, and we're going to ask you to transcribe students' test, test scores by hand onto these index cards, and then make piles of those index cards to try and figure out which students are doing well and which ones are falling behind. Now, when you think about it, this is totally inefficient, right? To, to, to take this like, data and instead of looking at printouts and computerized graphs, to, to translate it by hand onto index cards, that doesn't seem like it should make any sense. But what they found is that the teachers started learning so much more about how their students were actually learning. They started understanding what the numbers really meant because they had to interact with the information. They had to interact with the data. Within psychology, this is known as creating disfluency. And what it says is that when we're surrounded by a lot of information, sometimes in order to really absorb it, we have to make it a little bit harder to process. We have to give ourselves an opportunity to interact with the numbers and the, 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 the figures. 
And in fact, we find this all the time in people's lives. That, for instance, I have this um, this scale at home that sends all my daily weight when I stand on it to my an app on my phone, and it creates this really pretty graph of how much weight I've gained or lost every week. And at first, I thought that this would be like transformative, right? That I would like I, I would learn so much from this. But what I found was I basically would look at the graph and then kind of just like let my eyes slide over it and not pay any attention. It never changed how I was behaving. So then I started this new, this new routine. Every Sunday night, what I would do is I'd sit down and I'd open up that app, and I would, I would take all the information, the data out of the app, and I would make a graph by hand on a piece of paper. And then I would, I would write down what I ate each day. And suddenly I started noticing these patterns. Like, for instance, you know, on Wednesday, I didn't go for a run that morning, and I ate a hamburger, and I gained two pounds. And it took three days to, take, to, to lose those two pounds. But on Thursday in the morning, I, I went for a jog and, and I ate a salad for lunch. And on my graph, it shows that you know, I actually lost half a pound that day. It, once you interact with data, you really begin to learn from it. So it's not enough just to say we're living in an age of big data. You really have to somehow force yourself to, to use that data to make some sense of it. Um, I guess I guess the the message is there. You know, uh, companies are using big data stores like Target to target us. We we should be we should be using this better to help ourselves. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things that we know about this age about about the most productive people not only collect data about their lives, but they actually force themselves to interact with that data. I mean, another interesting thing, there's another chapter in Smarter, Faster, Better that looks at decision-making. One of the things that we know is that people who are much more successful, they tend to make better decisions, and they make decisions in a different way. In particular, what they do is they look to their own experiences as a set of experiments. They look for data that their own life generates. Now, most of us, we don't, we don't think about our past as a series of experiments, right? We don't sit down and think like, oh, I tried this and, and it failed, but I tried that and it succeeded, and, and what made the difference? Instead, we just kind of like think of our lives as basically uh, uh, a series of events. But, but really successful people, they, they think about their lives as experiments. They think about failures as not necessarily something to shy away from or feel embarrassed about, but instead as an opportunity to collect data and then put that data to better use. You write in your introduction to uh, Smarter, Faster, Better. You're trying to get in touch with the tool Gawande. And uh, this really resonated with me because you, you see him, and I think most people would, as, as a very productive person. Yeah, absolutely. There, there, I mean, so the origin for this book, Smarter, Faster, Better, was that, was that I kind of realized that we're living in this time where, where everyone feels like they're running as hard as they can, but despite that, it still sometimes feels like we're slipping farther and farther behind. But there are these people out there, like Atul Gawande, who seem uniquely skilled and talented at getting a lot of things done. Right? We, we've, we all know these people, folks who, who they seem like they're on top of um, everything at work, and they're great parents, and they have time for their marriage, and when you talk to them, they seem kind of relaxed. It doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like they're struggling as hard as everyone else. And what, what the mystery I was trying to figure out was, look, everyone only has 24 hours in each day, right? All of us have the same limitations and challenges, and yet there's some people who seem who seem to get so much more done. And, and 
I wanted to understand why. And as I started talking to, to neurologists and organizational psychologists and, and to executives who are particularly talented at getting things done or individuals who are, who are uniquely creative and seem to, to be creative on a, on a must, much faster timeline, what I realized is that the most productive people, they actually think differently than everyone else. They, they're much more aware of how their brain functions. And as a result, they have these tools for making better decisions or for generating self-motivation or for sharpening their focus. And that, more importantly, all of us can learn from that. All of us can become more productive. We can become better at governing our own minds, particularly in this economy as it's changing and this world where we're inundated by information and apps. It, but the key is to sort of learn how to use these tools, to learn that there's choices out there that some of us don't see, but that the most productive people not only are aware of, but that they act on every day. So uh, how, do you, how do you define productivity? So I think productivity is, is one of those things that has a definition that changes from person to person, place to place, right? For some people, a productive morning means that you get to zero inbox, right? You've dealt with all your emails. But for other people, a productive morning means that you, you have enough time to take your kids to school and chat with them on the way or to go for a run and get your exercise workout in. <clears throat> But underlying all of it is this basic principle, which is productivity means that you can get, achieve your goals with less waste and stress and struggle. So, that, so when people are productive and companies are productive, it means that they are focused on the right things and that they're able to achieve those things without having a huge amount of um, sacrifices along the way. Now, that might differ from person to person and place to place. It might even be a different definition um, depending on whether it's a weekend or a weekday for you. But, but, the, but at the core of it is this basic idea, which is that there are these tools that help people become more productive. And by giving you those tools, we empower you to decide what productivity is for you and then to make it easier and make it more real. So it's focusing on, I guess, focusing on the why of, of what you're doing? I did, I... Well, so, so one of the big lessons is that when it comes to, to how the most productive people motivate, for instance, is that you're exactly right. They focus on why. So, so one of the things that we know is that our, uh, there's a part of our brain known as the striata that, that where motivation seems to generate. Right? People who are particularly self-motivated, they've figured out ways to, to activate this part of their brain. And, and the easiest way to, mo to activate that part of your brain is to make choices that make you feel like you're in control. So it's to find opportunities to sort of assert yourself and to, to find ways to think about what you're doing that make it seem meaningful. So, so one of my favorite examples of this is email, right? We all struggle with kind of a, an avalanche of email that we have to deal with all the time. It, one of the best methods for generating motivation to deal with email, and, and, and this is something I used myself. I, I used to come home from work, and like I'd have like you know 30 emails that I had to reply to, and I'd be tired, and I just want to eat dinner with my kids, and then have a glass of wine and watch TV, and it was like a struggle to get started on the email. So what this psychologist told me is, look, this is what you should do: sit down at your your computer, you know, after the kids are in bed. And oh, take all the emails that you need to reply to and just hit reply, reply, reply. Fill up your, your desktop so that you've got all these windows. And then go into each one 
and just type like a half sentence that makes you feel in control. So if someone has asked, you know, can we have a meeting tomorrow? Say, yes, but we need to meet at, um, you know, 12.30 and I've only got 20 minutes. Or if they say, hey, look, can you have lunch next week? Say, okay, but I want to eat Indian food. Don't hit send. Just type these half sentences. And then when you're all done with that, then go back and fill in the rest of the emails. You know, hey, Jim, thanks so much. We can definitely meet tomorrow, but I want to do it at 1230 for 20 minutes. Because it's so much easier to generate this self-motivation once you've started, once you've made an assertion of control, it triggers that parts of your brain where self-motivation resides. But, but we all know that that's not enough for, like, really important things, right? Like, like, you can get yourself to respond to some emails that way, but how do you generate the motivation for really big tasks? Well, exactly as you described, you have to find the reason why you're doing it. it one professor I was talking to who is a cancer researcher, very, very productive cancer researcher, he said, look, the thing that I hate doing is I hate grading students' papers. Like, it's just boring, and it, like, it just seems like a waste of time to me. And so the way he generates motivation to do that is he sits down, and before he starts grading, he tells himself, look, the reason I'm grading these papers is because it helps the university make money to enroll these students. And when the university is making money, they can pay me to do cancer research. And I think cancer research is the most important thing I can do with my life. So by grading students' papers, I'm helping myself do cancer research. I'm helping cure cancer. Now... Obviously, this is the type of thing that in the back of our minds we should all know, right? But one of the things that we know about the neurological process is that very frequently we develop neural pathways by having this inner dialogue that makes things explicit to us. That by tying grading, grading students' papers to doing cancer research, that it actually strengthens neurologically the relationship between those things. And as a result, it's easier to generate the motivation for them. And the, the tool for doing that, the mechanism for kind of getting your brain to make that leap is by asking yourself why. And that why is very, very important and, and paired with control, right? I, I think you, you write in the book that uh, some feel like we're productive when we're just merely busy. That certainly resonates with me sometimes. I, I, and and it, it's tied up with uh, I just feel out of control. That's absolutely right. It, it, you know, one of the things that I think happens is that there is a, there, there's what, what's known within psychology as a cognitive need for closure, that we, 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 want to feel like, we want to feel like we're on top of things. And so as a result, there's this instinct to try and um, make fast decisions, to, to, to clear everything off of our to-do list, to, 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 to try and seek control. And control is great. Being in control is really, really important. But you want to... But it's important to channel that into something that's useful. One of my favorite examples of this is to-do lists. Um, there's been a lot of research in, in the right way and the wrong way to write a to-do list. And, and the way that I used to write a to-do list is that I would sit down and I would just sort of jot down all the tasks I want to get done. Very frequently, I would put at the top of my to-do list like some easy stuff, right? Because it feels so good to cross off those, those small things. You can kind of get this, this feeling of closure because you're on top of things. And at the bottom of the list, I'd put some of the harder things. Sometimes at the top of the list, I would actually write things that I had already done so that when I sat down at my desk, I could cross them off right away because it felt so good to do that. 
But what psychologists say is that this is exactly the wrong way to write a to-do list. This is what's known as using a to-do list for mood repair instead of productivity. So what they say you should do instead, and this is, what the most, this is how the most productive people end up tend to write to-do lists, is that at the top of your to-do list, you should write what's known as a stretch goal, like some big ambition, something that normally would be at the bottom of your list that you, that you really care about. And then under that, you need to break that down into a plan, because the problem with writing our biggest ambitions at the top of a page is that sometimes they can seem kind of overwhelming, right? We don't know where to start. If your goal is to run a marathon or lose 30 pounds or, or write that, memo, that big important memo or, or increase revenues by 10%, if you put that at the top of a page, sometimes you'll shy away from it. It almost seems too big. So underneath it, what psychologists recommend is that you write what are frequently known as SMART goals. And they're called SMART goals because the, the, the letters smell, spell it SMART, that you want to choose a goal, you want to break your big goal into a plan that is specific. So say specifically what you want to get done that morning. And it's measurable, right? Like in, I want to say not only specifically what I'm doing, but how I'm going to measure it. And I need to figure out, is it achievable? What, what do I need in place in order to, to get this thing done? It, what, what is realistic? Like if, for instance, I want to write a memo, if, it, if my specific goal is to write a memo and I want, to write, I want to write three pages within two hours, is that achievable? Yeah, I can do that, but I need, probably need to turn off my email in order to, get, to clear time on my schedule. And is that realistic? Well, yeah, to, to turn off my email, what I need to do is I probably need to set up some type of autoresponder or I need to turn off the phone. And then what's the timeline? Well, I, I want to set aside an hour and a half for this. Right, so I have this big goal that I want to write this big important memo, this stretch goal. But underneath it now, I have a plan. I know exactly what to do. And that way, when I sit down at my desk, I feel like I'm in control, but I'm in control the right way. Hmm. Yeah, that, that resonates. I think with me, and I'm probably typical of a lot of people, today with all the technology, and, it, and it's supposed to make our lives better, isn't it? But, uh, for example, productivity tools. And I, I'm a big fan of productivity tools. I've used a lot of them. But it, it seems like some of them just lead me into the weeds, and I, I, uh, I, I struggle with this. I guess I'm learning the wrong lesson. It was, so, so which goals do you feel like? Which tools do you feel like lead you into the weeds? Well, uh, just some, you know, some some typical um, uh, productivity tools. Um, for example, I've used Trello and, and Asana, and uh, you know, some of these, some of the, and, and they can be very helpful. But it seems like at the end of any of these experiments, they're just temporary experiments, and uh, I end up at the same place. I just feel like I'm too cluttered, and I'm I'm not accomplishing what I, you know, the core goals. So I guess it comes back to me. So I, I think this is pretty typical. I mean, one of the things that we find is that when most people think about productivity, they tend to think of productivity as something that might, as like a, a life hack, right? Something that might increase their efficiency by one or two percent. And that's great. It's great to increase our efficiency by 1% or 2%. But what we've, what we've found is that people who are genuinely productive, they, they're not looking for quick fixes that just kind of speed up their day a little bit. They, they're looking for things that change what they're doing by 10 or 15 or 20%. Mm. Because the truth of the matter is that if, if I look at your life and I just tell you, um, you know, I'm, you're going to do all the same stuff, you're just going to do it a little bit faster – that's not really that useful, right? Like, like you're, still, you're still on the same treadmill. You just happen to have increased the speed a little bit. People who are genuinely productive, they know how to start thinking differently. 
they usually step back and in fact they make decisions like I'm focused on the wrong kinds of goals or I'm getting distracted because I'm not I'm not sharpening my focus the right way or I keep on feeling my motivation lag at the wrong times so instead of looking for these like little things that they can fix they look for big things they look to understand how can I train myself in how my brain works so that I know how to generate motivation when I really need it how can I train myself to remain focused on a task and not get distracted by all the small things that can pop up every day big changes they come from making or big improvements come from making big changes um, and oftentimes that means that we have to embrace something that's kind of audacious one of my favorite stories about this is the invention of the bullet train um, in the 1950s when when Japan was rebuilding economically the head of the railway system and and the railway system was incredibly important in Japan because it's how most of the goods within the country moved around the head of the railway system went to his top engineers and he said look we need to improve our train system at, at that point trains went about 55 miles per hour in general he said I want you to invent a train that can go 120 miles per hour and all of his engineers said that is crazy there's no way it's impossible we can't do that we can't make that happen. Maybe we can invent trains that go like 65 miles per hour, maybe 70 miles per hour. But the head of the railway system, he said, look, that's not good enough. We need to rebuild this country. If we look for incremental improvements, we're just going to have incremental growth. What we need to do is we need to figure out how to jump forward. So the engineers sat down. And what they found was that once someone had challenged them this way to, to try and do something that's impossible, to try and achieve this stretch goal, that they, they had to start thinking about things in completely different ways. Rather than thinking about a train as something with a locomotive at the front and cars behind, they had to start thinking about maybe there's a way to invent a train where every single car is a locomotive. But the thing is that if every single car is a locomotive, it makes the train much heavier, and the tracks wouldn't support that. So instead they had to start thinking about, how do you redesign the tracks? And then once they started thinking about redesigning the tracks, they realized, well, if we, the train turns too much, we can't go that fast. But Japan's really hilly, so what we'd have to do is we'd have to drill all these tunnels through all these mountains. It took about two years, but at the end of it, they had this plan, this audacious plan to say, let's create a national railway system where we drill tunnels through mountains, we come up with a completely new way of building tracks, we have trains where every single car is a locomotive instead of being pulled from the front, and that was the birth of the bullet train. Hmm. It transformed not only Japan, but it transformed every almost every other type of transportation since then. That comes from, uh, I guess, a, a leader, right, who, who says we, we have to totally reframe how we're, how we're thinking about this. I think it comes from a leader, but I, I, I think it also comes from all of us acting as leaders, right? Mm. I, I mean, one of the things that we know is that in contemporary workplaces, the role of the leader is becoming more and more ambiguous. Um, I, I, you know, I, belong, I work at the New York Times, and I belong to five or six teams. And I'm not even certain who the leader of those teams are, right? We're all kind of leaders. I mean, that's sort of the point of today's workplaces, is that everyone has to take the initiative. Uh, within, within the business world, this is known as like a lean management system or an agile philosophy towards management, which says that you, you take advantage of your, of your employees' best instincts. You can take advantage of everyone's unique expertise when you empower the person who's closest to a problem to be the one who's solving that problem. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're hearing an encore broadcast of a conversation from 2011. Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Charles Duhigg. We talked about a couple of his books, The Power of Habit and Smarter, Faster, Better. Following a break, we're going to be talking with wildlife naturalist Casey Anderson. His best friend is a grizzly bear named Brutus, and uh, we will talk about a a television uh, program that he'd put together. We'll hear excerpts from that uh, about grizzly bears. That'll be coming up following this. Support for Year of the Woman on Utah Public Radio comes in part from our members and Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce, offering COVID-19 resources, video meetings, and social media exposure, building value for all types of Cache Valley businesses. Details at cachechamber.com. Calling all artists, designers, bird, and native plant lovers. The deadline for the Utah Public Radio and Bridgerland Audubon Society Grow Native for Birds Bookmark Art Contest has been extended. You now have until October 13th to submit your best design celebrating the beauty of Utah's native plants and the many wild birds that rely on them. Your vote will decide the winning design and it will be printed on an educational bookmark. For more details, go to upr.org and to submit, just send your design to katie.swain at usu.edu. This week in This American Life. A doctor sleeps with 11 of his patients, goes before a medical disciplinary board. He is still practicing medicine today. A doctor gives his prescription pad to somebody, who then prescribes controlled substances for cash. The doctor goes before a disciplinary board. They do not take his license. He is still practicing medicine today. Why this happens this week. Tune in Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the second half of the program, we're talking with wildlife naturalist Casey Anderson. Together with his best friend, a grizzly bear named Brutus, Casey Anderson's worked on feature films, television shows, and commercials. When they're not on the set, they spend their days at Montana Grizzly Encounter, a bear rescue and education facility that uh, Casey Anderson founded in 2004 in Bozeman, Montana. Uh, Here's a conversation from uh, the year 2010. Grizzly bears. Naturalist Casey Anderson, along with his best friend, an 800-pound grizzly bear named Brutus, uh, set on a year-long mission to chronicle the lives of Yellowstone's vulnerable island grizzly bears. We're going to be talking about that and uh, what we can do about it. Also learn a lot about grizzly bears. Fascinating animal, of course. And uh, welcome to the program, Casey Anderson. Thanks for having me. We appreciate you uh, taking the time. Uh, watched the program last night. Fascinating and uh, a little nerve-wracking for me at times. You're, you're getting uh, closer than I wanted you to get to some of these grizzly bears. But yeah, I guess... well, yeah, it's, uh, well I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll do that for you. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess you know what you're doing. Uh, let's, uh, I wanted to play just a couple of minutes from near the beginning of the program, give people an idea of a little bit of your background. So here's, uh, uh, here's a bit of the, the program. From my very first encounter, I've been fascinated by this amazing animal. The more I learned, the more I wanted to tell their story. And the little-known tale of these Yellowstone grizzlies is truly one for the ages. But my passion goes beyond observing these bears in the wild. You see, my feelings towards grizzlies are a little bit different than most people. Maybe that's because my best friend weighs in at, oh, about 800 pounds. That's him there. He's a brown bear named Brutus, and I've raised him since birth. 
Let me explain how it all started. I was born in Helena, Montana in 1975, the same year the Yellowstone grizzly bear was added to the endangered species list. Growing up surrounded by the Montana wilderness, it's no surprise I quickly learned about all the local wildlife. By Montana standards, this bear was very tame. Fast forward to college, and as I studied biology, I got more and more engaged in the wilder side of things. This is Patches the Wolverine. And here's Hershey, Oki, and Brookie, three river otters I got to know well. In the winter, I ran a team of sled dogs, anything to be outside and working with animals. Before I knew it, I was the curator at a wildlife park, visiting an elephant orphanage in Kenya and hanging out with some amazing crocodiles. And yes, these jobs come with their occasional bumps and bruises, like the time a mountain lion gave me a pretty good thrashing. But hey, if it's your passion, you lick your wounds and turn the corner. And that led me straight to Brutus. Here he is about five months old. Throughout my life, I've been called the animal magnet because animals always seem to find me. But with Brutus, well, it seems like we picked one another, sort of like friends on the playground. And we've been going strong ever since. So people will be curious about Brutus. Uh, yeah. This you 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 found him as a cub, right? Or he was he's going to be euthanized? You saved him from that? Yeah, he was a captive-born bear, basically that could never be released to the wild, and his his future was very uncertain. So to prevent him from being euthanized, uh, I built a sanctuary uh, in Montana called Montana Grizzly Encounter. And what we do is rescue bears in these situations and give them you know the next best thing uh, from being wild, a place to live, and. Uh, with Brutus, you know, it's very unique. I raised him since he was two weeks old, the size of a coffee mug. So we formed this incredible bond. And, uh, you know, now, you know, what he showed me is that we can touch the world in a way that no one else can, but then maybe more importantly, be ambassadors for the wild bears and captivate an audience and uh, teach some really, you know, real things that we can uh, apply to, to the Yellowstone grizzly and, and try to save them. Uh, there's a real bond of trust. Uh, this, you know, you to him because he's he's 800 pounds. It could could kill you with one swat of his uh, his paw. You know, if he's a wild grizzly, uh, and 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 him to you. Uh, there's a, some extraordinary footage of you wrestling with Brutus, riding Brutus, uh, and you do mention on the narration, "Don't try this at home." Of course. Yeah, people get in trouble. I think when. Uh... Yeah, you cross that line of respect with with animals. Brutus, ninety percent of the time, is just being a bear at the sanctuary, wrestling and playing with other bears and swimming and digging. Uh, but he does enjoy his companionship with me. That's part of the you know the quality of life that he deserves. Uh, but as long as it's on his terms, if you know he's uncomfortable one day, I don't I don't do it. I don't if he's showing agitation or you know I don't force him to do anything. Uh, and that's the li- bottom line. I mean, when, when people impose themselves on animals and forget that they are animals, uh, that's, you know, when you cross that line of respect, that's when you get into trouble. You say you've been fascinated by grizzly bears, and and you took that a, a step further, studying the so-called island population. Tell us about the Yellowstone grizzlies. Well, they're a unique population, you know, obviously surrounded by human development on all sides. Uh, you know, they don't have the the salmon runs that the Alaskan bears do. They, they're eating things like roots and rodents and grubs and moths. Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a real job for them. 
and some of these things are disappearing and uh, you know, are, are threatened due to climate change. So it's changing for them, uh, and they're looking for alternative food sources. You know, last year alone in the Yellowstone ecosystem, 40 grizzlies were destroyed because you know they came into contact with humans. And often, what's happening is you know they're they're looking for the path of least resistance, and they looking for food and they come to town and eat bird feeders or they get on the porch and eat the dog food and uh we as as the adaptive species living around these these beautiful animals need to adjust uh, we need to understand them we need to do things that we can prevent this stuff from happening so we can save their lives and uh and our lives too uh, so tell me a little bit about about the grizzly bear the the um and you uh, do some demonstrations using brutus so just how big this animal is and and strong and uh, and some of the other and fast for example yeah i mean they're amazing animals i mean they are fast and strong and smart i always say they're only thumbs from taking over the world <laughs> the, you know, we were out there watching them in the wild you know we're we're just being silent invisible observers you see them moving over these big rocks to get at moths but the cool twist on this documentary that, that I really think is captivating is that now I can go back to the sanctuary. I can put a, one of these boulders on a scale and weigh it in at a ton. And I do that. I, I get a, a one-ton boulder, use the tractor to put it into place, and see if Brutus can get a treat from underneath of it. And he does. He rolls it over really easily. And so what that does, it puts this in this unique perspective. It, it makes it in a way that people can understand it a little bit better. And, uh, you know, it's an ed- it's edutainment, I like to call it, mm-hmm. and uh, it's captivating. And that's what I'm trying to do. You know, Brutus and I are trying to captivate the audience. We're trying to make people care in a cool, innovative way. Uh, and nose, what did you say, seven more times sense- more sensitive than a bloodhound? Absolutely. It's amazing. It's, you know, and you'll see it through the show when I'm out in the wild. You know, one of the main things I've got to do is, you know, I don't want them to know I'm there. So, like, things like that, you know, it's hard to be invisible to an animal that's got a, a nose like that. So I'm always doing things like staying downwind and uh, whatnot. But, uh, yeah, they're amazing creatures, and uh, that nose can get them in trouble. I mean, mm-hmm. if they're digging on a log looking for grubs and someone's cooking eggs down the, the trail and not storing it the right way, you know, it's a no-brainer for them. They're going to they're gonna go there. Mm. So uh, storing it the right way... Uh airtight so the bear can't smell it how what do you do well it's it's more you know they're not going to cut they know you're there they're not going to come but it's more of in, when you're not around um and they know you're not around if you don't have it hanging in trees or in bear proof containers you know they make electric fences now that you can put around your camp they're all very effective ways that we as humans again can adapt and we can in, implement these things when we're in grizzly country um and uh, prevent these things from happening couple of the uh, behaviors of bears that you were able to observe, and some of these observations you were able to do, you know, completely unnoticed. Um, one that I, I found fascinating, and, and Brutus, you know, shows an example of this, uh, the bear putting on a scent over him or herself, so that I guess that's to uh, to uh, make uh, other animals around think that it's, it's not a bear, it's some other scent. Yeah, it, I see it in the wild all the time, you know. You always hear, you know, bear hunters. Even they'll say, "Boy, that that bear really was stinky when you know we went over to him." And that's because every time they come across anything stinky, they do they roll in it to mask themselves of their of their natural scent. They want to smell like something else so they can move through the forest undetected. Um, yeah, and Brutus, you know, he still has his instincts. He's still a grizzly bear. So from time to time, when he he smells things he uh, that are pungent, he'll 
rolling it. And you'll see, you know, again, the mirroring of that, that peak, that unique peak into the world of the grizzly that Albrutus allows us to have. Uh, I want to play another clip uh, here. This is um, from a kind of a dicey situation that, that you're in, and, and uh, the solution, <laughs> I don't know if I would have had the courage to do this solution, but, uh, and you say it's a last resort. Anyway, let's, let's listen to this, and I'll have you comment on this uh, afterwards. And here we go. The big boar whose tracks I saw earlier is coming right over the crest of the hill. You listen to them, they're doing whooping. It's an un- that means they're uncomfortable. They go, that means I'm upset. I'm not feeling really good with the situation. I feel like right now I should be doing that because I don't feel real good with the situation. Adult male grizzlies are not social animals. They don't like competition for food or a female's affection. And these adolescents are simply no match for this huge boar. Will it be fight or flight? Now I've got myself in a crazy situation. The two sub-adults went over the hill, out of sight, then suddenly they bolted towards me. And they come within about 35 yards away. And now I see that big male bear is moving up behind them on the ridge. It looks like these guys know this isn't a bear fight. Thankfully, they're distracted and they don't even notice me. They're covering their own hides and heading straight for the forest. But my situation just got worse. I'm armed only with a can of bear spray and I have no chance of outrunning this big boar, who in a burst of speed can run up to 40 miles per hour. I've got a territorial male showing that he's the boss. I don't want him to show me that he's the boss. It's easy to see when Brutus opens his mouth why I don't want to anger this bear. A grizzly's mouth gate measures around 12 inches and holds four two-inch canines. And they have the bite force of over 1,200 pounds per square inch, enough to crush a bowling ball. Now this is a little bit too close for comfort. He senses us, he's coming up to us right now. He doesn't know where we are, he can't smell us. So I have to really soon let that bear know that I'm a human. And I think right now might be the time. Hey, bear. And just like I thought, as soon as he identifies us as a human, he wants nothing to do with us. He couldn't smell us. He was moving in really at a dangerous, dangerous distance. So I had to stand up, say, hey bear, identify myself as a human. And just like any bear should in this ecosystem, be afraid of humans and get out of here. That was a close call. Scaring a bear off like that is always the last resort. And I would imagine that'd be the last resort. That's a, that's a nerve wracking uh, and, and very uh, dramatic uh, um, scene there. A huge uh, male bear and uh, and you stood up, and and he uh, ran off. Uh, yeah, it's it's a characteristic that you know is vital for the Yellowstone grizzly, being that they live around people constantly. There's you know four million visitors visit Yellowstone National Park to have the fear of humans. It's this human bear interaction that's causing their death. So, yeah, in that situation, I mean, 
it's, this comes with experience and, and being in this situation and understanding the bear on a, on a different level. Um, but yes, they are way more afraid of us than we are of them. Mm-hmm. And it, in, in that clip, you'll see where I stand. I don't run. I don't panic. I keep my cool, which basically is happening is I'm projecting some body language that's very real to him that he's reading. And when I stand in, in my silhouette as a human being and my voice very calmly saying, hey, bear, you know, and, he, and I paced that off. He was about 19 yards away when he was coming. Um, he, he chose to go the other way, and they'll do that more often than not. And that's because they are afraid of us. Um, if I would have screamed, if I would have ran, if I would have panicked, then you, then again, I'm giving off some very obvious body language, and it's not the right body language that you want to give to these bears. It's going to provoke the, the wrong uh, decision from them, the one, mm-hmm. not the one that's favorable from you. So, you know, these are things that I've learned through the years. But, you know, again, you see that my backup plan there is that can of bear spray. If that bear would have chose to to come over to eliminate the threat, he would have got a face full of bear spray and would have deterred him away, and uh, he would have learned it the, the hard way. Uh, so bear spray, is that something you suggest people have? How do you use that? What what? Uh... It, it's it's amazing. It's an amazing product that's out there. It's been proven time and time again to, to work. It saves lives every year. Um, I mean, I think the majority of the people that were hurt last year in Yellowstone did not have bear spray. I think all of them did. I did not have bear spray. I know people defended themselves several times using bear spray in Yellowstone last year and, and walked away from the situation. I like to, like I take to tell the kids. You know, it really turns you into a giant skunk. You know, that bear comes towards you. This stuff shoots out. 40 feet in a big fog. You don't have to be Jesse James. You don't have to be accurate. It's miserable. They hate it. They want to get away from it. They go the opposite direction as fast as they can. Hmm. Now what's happened is that you've saved that you've saved your life, but that bear goes away. He recovers fully, and he, his life has, hasn't been taken either. But then again, you've taught a lesson to that bear. I mean, next time it sees a human, its choice is going to be different. Just as when we see a skunk, we don't go over and try to mess with it because we know what's going to happen. They're smart creatures. They'll adapt to us if we're willing to adapt to them. You mentioned there there are encounters. I mentioned there are encounters, human bear encounters every year in Yellowstone. Uh, so definitely have your bear spray. What what other uh, what other tips can you give us in uh, you know enjoying uh, the the park, but uh, not having a bad encounter with a bear? Yeah, it's just. It, you can, it's very possible to, to do that, and uh, it's just knowing you're going into grizzly country, you know, uh, storing your food properly. You know, they make these electric fences you can put around your camp, you know, hike in groups, talk to each other. You know, the bear hears you coming down the trail. He'll be long gone before you even get there. Um, carry the bear spray. Know how to use the bear spray. Be confident. You know, you, what happens is people, you know, they might buy the can of bear spray, and they put it in their backpack, and they go out there unprepared, and they're not really, you know, they have the, they're not really thinking about it. You need to understand what... You need to understand your tools. You need to know how to use them. Um, you got to have the right state of mind. But it, it can be very peaceful. Last year, I encountered or saw over 100 grizzly bears in the summer, and uh, you know you'll see the only time that it even got was a close call on the on the show. Every other time was very peaceful. They didn't even know I was there, and if they did, they just went the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to ask you uh, about. First of all, let me. Uh reintroduce our guest uh, just about four minutes left with him but uh, Casey Anderson naturalist uh, has been studying the grizzly bear in Yellowstone so-called island population because they're hemmed in on all sides by roads and, and humans 
and uh, so especially vulnerable uh, to climate change and, and other factors. And uh, a, a documentary uh, featuring the Yellowstone Grizzlies called Expedition Grizzly, featuring Casey Anderson with us for another uh, uh, four minutes. One reason I was interested to learn from the, from the documentary uh, that uh, grizzlies are perhaps vulnerable to climate change is because of one of their favorite foods, which surprisingly is a moth. Yeah, every year in the late summer, uh, these moths, army cutworm moths, they migrate from the Great, the Great Plains all the way to the Yellowstone area to feed on the high alpine uh, wildflowers, the nectar of the high alpine wildflowers. And during the heat of the day, these moths will crawl in you know, up at 13,000 feet into the cracks of these rocks and hide from the sun. Well, the bears have figured this out, and they go there, and they will excavate these moths out of the rocks by the the tens of thousands. In fact, some big males will eat up to 40,000 of these moths in one day. And they're they're really one of the only things there is to eat that time of the year. And uh, and they're adapting and going to these places. And this is something that they've just discovered recently. And it's just interesting, you know, but... Yes, climate change can easily change the pattern of these moths. And if that food source goes away, then unfortunately, on this island population, you know, they're, again, they're going to start looking for Plan B, and that could be campgrounds, and it could be, you know, people's backyards. And we want to avoid that, and, you know, we want to protect these animals. We want to, to be aware of this issue. Um, you know, they're part of our American heritage, and we should want to keep them around. And you say uh, that uh, this island population is never truly safe from extinction and that once an island population is gone, natural recovery is nearly impossible. Uh, so what are some things that you would advocate that, that, that we do to, uh, to protect this island population? Well, we need to be aware of climate change and realize it's happening for whatever reason it's happening um, and, and you know, revisit if there's things that we can do to prevent it happening at such a rapid rate. We need to realize that these bears are going to be adapting and moving around, and we need to take the precautions to not let them get in trouble. You know, let's store our food the right way. Know that they're in our backyard. Let's put electric fences around our beehives, you know, things that we can do to keep them out of trouble. Um, you know, and then there's things with the connectivity, you know, from the rest of the bears in North America. You know, there's places that have implemented these these overpasses over highways where the bears can cross highways. They won't cross an interstate highway. It might, it might as well be a 100-foot wall. But if we can we engineer these little, very simple overpasses, then we're, we're, we're going to make this connectivity thing possible. So it's, it's about habitat, maintaining what we have. It's about caring. It's about trying to coexist with these guys and adapting ourselves because we are the species that can adapt. We'll uh, leave it there. The uh, documentary, Expedition Grizzly, featuring Casey Anderson and also his best friend, Brutus, 800-pound uh, grizzly bear. And uh, Casey Anderson has been our guest in this part of, uh, of the program. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, let's, uh, let's go out, Shalane, with uh, cut number three there, just a little uh, more snippet from the, from the documentary. Although food may be plentiful and weather kind, Grizzlies confront a new challenge every day during the warmer months, people. Nearly three million tourists arrive mostly during the peak summer months and managing them while preserving the grizzlies' natural behavior is a big job. Today I'm gonna soak up the experience of your typical park visitor. And that means driving the park's roads and looking for people, or more specifically, a bear jam. 
a gridlock of cars and pedestrians vying for a glimpse of a real live grizzly bear. And it doesn't take me long to find one. The source of all this attention is this beautiful blonde grizzly. What an amazing opportunity for all these people. Right above them, only 30 yards away, we have a young female grizzly foraging, eating grasses and dandelions. She's moving about and I've actually watched her go over in an area with some rocks and she was turning over the rocks. I could see her paws really close and she's probably eating ants underneath those rocks. There's a little bit more from Expedition Grizzly featuring a naturalist Casey Anderson along with his uh, friend, an 800-pound grizzly bear that he raised from a cub. Uh, featured on that documentary, we've uh, uh, learned about grizzly bears in the Yellowstone uh, Island population on uh, this part of the program. And uh, grateful for uh, Casey Anderson coming on with us. We are grateful, and for Charles Duhigg in the first part of the program. This uh, last half hour was broadcast from 2010. Um, and coming up tomorrow, we will uh, feature the next speaker in the USU Voting Rights Symposium series. Uh, she'll be appearing on a web broadcast, which you can participate uh, with. We'll give you details during the program tomorrow. Uh, that's uh, tomorrow afternoon at 5. Preceding that, uh, in the morning, 9 o'clock, we'll be talking with Professor Selena Gallo-Cruz to the theme, Invisibility, Resistance, and Women's Political Power. Hope you join us then. My name is Sally Keller. I listen to Utah Public Radio through my smartphone app as I'm riding my exercise bike. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.